We are back. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. So psyched to be back. We've had to take a few weeks off, recharge the batteries, get some computers fixed, but we are back. And so excited to have with us as a guest, Derek Silva, who's the co-author of the forthcoming book, The End of College Football. And he's a professor of sociology at King's University College, and he co-hosts the End of Sport podcast. Uh, I'll tell you something. I wanted to talk to Derek because he co-wrote a story with Nathan Kalman Lamb and Johanna Mellis called We Told You So. For black athletes, racism from college fans is a familiar story. And it takes on BYU, which has been in the news a great deal recently, um, around volleyball player Rachel Richardson's contention that she was called racial slurs. And then BYU looking like they were, you know, covering up faster than a Bruce Springsteen song from the 1970s and making sure that nobody talked about it anymore. Yeah, that joke did not land. Um, but that's okay. Uh, we're going to keep on going right here. Also, I've got uh, some serious, serious, serious uh, choice words about Aaron Judge and the home run record, Barry Bonds. Uh, I also got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards. Uh, but first and foremost, let's talk to Derek Silva. Derek, how you doing, sir? Um, I'm really good. Happy to be here. So why did you, uh, Nathan Kalman Lamb and Johanna Mellis, why did you focus on this? Why did you decide to write this article, We Told You So? Yeah, I mean, it, it all started in, in August, really, um, when um, a, a so-called fan called uh, Duke volleyball player Rachel Richardson a, uh, a racial slur during a match, during a volleyball match between Duke and, and uh, BYU. And then subsequently, the next day, BYU banned that fan um, and came out and said, we're going to do this investigation, all this stuff, um, and did this in- investigation and on September 9th. Um, this uh, supposedly uh, uh, the supposed uh, investigation, this internal investigation from Duke found no evidence um, of any racial slur that was used and apologized to the fan um, and retracted that um, punishment and allowed the fan to, to come back in. So it all kind of percolated for, for myself, Nathan and Johanna to, to kind of get, kind of explore this area of fandom and racism and ask and speak to college athletes about their experiences of racism uh, during um, during play. And this brought us all of our work to date uh, or much of our work to date has been talking with uh, college athletes um, about a variety of issues. Uh, and we're really interested in, in learning about and hearing from athletes on whether or not they've experienced racism. Um, mm. So that that kind of took us out to to reaching out through our networks and talking to, to athletes about whether or not they've experienced then this experienced racism, overt racism, um, and this this culminated um, in in the piece that we we recently published for the Guardian, which which brings in a variety of voices and a, a number of college athletes and experts and scholars on racism in sport um, to, to tackle and, and to talk about experiences of racism. Mm. I want to talk to you more about the Rachel Richardson saga in a moment, but, you know, I remember growing up uh, there being racist chants 
as well, but particularly at college basketball games, Duke was particularly notorious when I was growing up with this stuff. Uh, and my, my question is, are we more aware of it now? Or is there something ugly percolating in the country with you know the rise of Trumpism and the like, where you're seeing a sharper edge on the racism than maybe we saw even 10 years ago? I have my own theories, but I'm curious what you th- what you think. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think we we are likely a little bit more aware of overt forms of racism that exist because of development of technology, and we can record certain things. But there is this insidious sort of underbelly of a, a, a large group um, in North America who want to ignore that this reality exists and want to hide and not talk about this reality. And this is really what we're what we've seen um, publishing this piece. We've seen this kind of underbelly in social media where like folks are coming to us and saying video evidence or it didn't happen. Like you need to have audio recordings or this never happened. And the same thing happened to Rachel Richardson. Uh, Rachel Richard, Richardson was sort of piled on um, in, in, in online space to to produce like audio recordings as if she wasn't sort of playing the game. And when we published this piece, similar things happened to us on social media where the onus became like, we need to have every ounce of audio and video proof of anything, of any form of racism, or it does not exist. Mm. So it's a, a willful ignorance of reality. So we might be aware of it more, but there is this underbelly in this insidious movement to to strategically and tacitly deny the existence of mm-hmm. racism. You know, I, I just wrote an article about Rachel Richardson and I got dogpiled on for it. Mm-hmm. So I can't even begin to imagine what she's had to deal with. But one one of the things that people would would throw at me in between various uh, cuss words and whatnot is um, these reports are out. These reports that show this didn't happen. Video, da 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 da. And my response to that was always, "So you're taking an internal BYU investigation and." the local cops in this incredibly racist community has reason to say that Rachel Richardson is lying about what someone might've yelled at her mm-hmm. in a volleyball arena. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think that's, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm just saying, what, what do you think of that answer to when people say that? And aren't you also just, I mean, I'm just a little bit incredulous that, people take as holy writ BYU investigating itself. And let's be honest, any cop that would have been there and investigating is also on the BYU payroll. Mm -hmm. You know, that's how these things work. So they're making extra money by being there, videotaping all the rest of it on top of their cop salary. So I don't know. That's me going, that's me going on a little bit, but I just, it always really bothered me that their counterpoint was cops BYU. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they any third any in- investigation that's not a third party investigation is complete bullshit. 
it, it, it we we should not give it any lend it any credence at all. And this case is the is exactly that for the number of reasons that you've pointed out. Are we going to accept the the institution who has a vested interest in saying that racism does not exist within their um, fans and within their community and the cops that are on the payroll um, or the cops that are um, in <laughs> in some ways um, want to look favorably upon BYU for it could be alumni or whatever? Are we going to believe those? folks over Rachel Richardson and other athletes. And this, it actually tells the story of America at large. And the fact that, that black folks have to constantly prove that they are not criminals, that they're not liars, that they are doing things by the book. It's the same conspiracy theory um, with with voting, that there's this mass voter fraud uh, that exists, and therefore everyone, we have, to be we have to be suspicious of everyone. And who are we suspicious of? Well, the Black folks. Um, and so, so this is what we're trying to get at in this piece is is asking athletes what they think of these uh, of this entire situation and what happened with Rachel Richardson and their own experiences and a number of them if not all of them articulated that th there's a lot of emotional labor that comes into having to prove that your experiences of harm and vexatious racism were true there is a lot like these these folks are working they they're working uh, 80 hours a week or more on their craft and and trying to be the best athletes and then on top of that they have to take on the labor of proving that something that we all know exists across North America uh, in our arenas in our schools in our churches etc that these experiences are real and that is a really, really harmful um, approach, uh, and I and I do think that there's this this underbelly of um, of uh, sort of the political milieu that is strategically doing this, and that's why we see the pylons. That's why we see that oh, right. if we don't have if we don't have video and audio evidence, it didn't exist, and right. and there's an inherent hypocrisy. Uh, in this and it for a lot of folks um and i pointed this out on twitter that it, it's 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 shocking or it should, it's not shocking how quickly like we need video evidence or it didn't happen turns into video evidence lacks context when it's about lynching of a black man um that mm -hmm. video evidence isn't enough in those situations right we have video evidence in in these situations but it's not enough because it lacks context so yeah. there, this is really highlighting a, a sort of strategic turn um, f of the right. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a scary one, to be quite frank. Yeah. And uh, just for, for the record, my own personal thoughts and timelines about these things is that uh, there, there's racism in college sports has been prevalent for some, for <laughs> as long as there's been college sports, uh, fan taunting, more a phenomenon of the 70s and then into the 80s. And then it did get better, you know, with like new generations of athletes and the like. But this recent period around Trumpism mm -hmm. is even like beyond the 70s and 80s stuff in, especially against uh, uh, athletes uh, from Latin America. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just brutal, build that wall, very common mm -hmm. chant now if you're playing the school uh, and, uh, it's just, 
I don't know. It, it's very upsetting. I, I wanted to bring it back, um, if I could, to BYU. Um, what was your reaction to Duke University coming out so strongly in defense of Rachel Richardson? Because that, that, that took me aback, to be honest. Yeah, it was a little. What does that tell us? I, I was a little bit surprised, um, partially because we have to remember that universities like Duke are are complicit in this atmosphere, right? They they tacitly encourage abuse of visiting players by fans. You know, like they promote these intimidating atmospheres, um, and in in a way, Duke is complicit in what happened to Rachel Richardson. Um, and I'm not blaming Duke for that, but they are complicit in that culture. So I was I was a little bit taken aback by the sh- the strength. Um, that that um, that Duke kind of came out. Um, but in some ways, I think that that is um, <clears throat> it, it's almost easy when it's a place like BYU to sort of make yourself seem better um, when you know that like BYU didn't accept black folks into the um, uh, or the Mormon, sorry, Mormon uh, faith didn't uh, church didn't accept black folks into the late 1970s. So it's relatively easy to to make yourself seem better by othering them by suggesting that BYU is bad. And this doesn't happen at Duke. So there's a vested interest for Duke to do that um, as well, even though in uh, I would argue, and and from folks that we've talked to um, anonymously, uh, there racism is alive and well on the campuses of almost every university, mm-hmm. um, pr- predominantly Power Five uh, institutions. It's alive and well on all the campuses. So, I I don't want to read too much into it and give Duke props or um, mm-hmm. give uh, give undue praise um, to Duke, um, but I was a little bit surprised that they they came out so strongly. Yeah, and if they were, you're going to pick one school in the country that should not be smelling its own gas over this, it would be Duke University. Yeah, yeah, and it's, I, I it's mean almost, that's why they didn't overplay it, right? Yeah, because you're Duke for God's sake. You're infamous yeah. when it comes to this stuff. Yeah. I I wanted to ask you because uh, this was another thing that people threw at me. Is I, I wrote an article about the tradition of the Mormons and the tradition of college athletes in the seventies protesting from having to play or do meets at BYU. Mm-hmm. And, um, and people were like, that, that is not fair game. That is, you know, five decades ago. Uh, what does that have to do with whether or not somebody said something to Rachel Richardson? You know, they would always say it with that doubt, uh, mm-hmm. with the weather or not. Um, and I want, I want, I want to ask you: Is that fair game? Is that important to know that history, uh, or or does that otherize and give a pass to other schools? No, I I think it's it's definitely important. We have to remember that history to understand the present. Um, I and I I think we have to do it in a way that doesn't give a pass to other institutions. And there there's no example of of the the past sort of culminating in the, in the present than a report that we released last week with the guardian which highlighted that this isn't just a volleyball thing this wasn't just a Rachel Richardson thing in 2021 a year before what happened to Rachel Richardson a uh, women's soccer team uh, traveled to Provo uh, and played and received similar um, similar racial uh, attacking while they were um, kneeling for the national anthem. So 
we can't understand the the current context unless we look back and understand history but we have to be careful not to give a pass to other places and other institutions because the plantation dynamics of college sport saturate the entire system the ncaa is saturated in these plantation dynamics and we have to acknowledge that and recognize that agreed i do also have to say uh when I've interviewed NBA players and asked them this very question, where's the worst place? It's everybody to a person, Utah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like in terms of racist cat calling and the like, yeah. it's like yeah. it's, it's Utah. Some players I talked to said even only Utah. Yeah. Yeah. You and and I mean BYU admitted they have a problem themselves. They released a two thousand uh, a report in two thousand twenty one that said its students of color often feel isolated and unsafe as a result of experiences with racism. Jeez. So they they know they have a problem. And when we approached BYU for comment on these on these uh, reports, uh, John McBride, the associate uh, director for communications and media strategy, uh, admitted that there was an incident. And, but just didn't want to call it for what it was. He said that there was an incident reported and it needed an announcement at this women's soccer game, but didn't want to admit uh, or um, fell short of sugge- uh, of admitting that there was any form of racial attack. Um, and and that's what BYU um, in, in some ways uh, may stand for. And, 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 and I, I'm with you. I've heard that Utah... And BYU, Utah generally and BYU specifically are atrocious play, places to go um, for for racialized athletes. You know, there, there was a moment when the pile on Rachel Richardson was so terrible. I thought this whole thing is about to go south really, really fast. Mm-hmm. And then I really did feel like there was a whole change in the conversation when Don Staley stepped forward mm-hmm. and not only supported Rachel Richardson, but said, we're not going to play there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, how important was that to you? Am I overstating? How important was that moment in, in this conversation of Dawn Staley um, inject herself and her profile into this? It's absolutely important. Um, and one of the the athletes that we spoke to, um, former pit track athlete Jordan Fields articulated this um, and said that she was thankful um, for coaches like Don Staley um, that have sort of reconsidered whether it's safe. And I think that's an important point. Like, yes, we absolutely have to have discussions of whether BYU is a safe space for racialized athletes to go and play. That's the first question. But secondly, I think what Don Staley really, really signaled was that she believes folks. She believes Rachel Richardson and she doesn't need a BYU investigation or cops to to justify that position. And I think that is perhaps more um, important, broadly speaking, um, in, in how Don Staley responded. Mm. Um, yeah, you've been so generous with your time, Derek. I really do appreciate it. But before you go, uh, I think my listeners are going to be very intrigued that you're doing a book called The End of College Football. Yeah. Give us a general thesis on this one. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's part sociology of the NCAA and part polemical call to action against a racialized system of both higher education and um, exploitation that exists on the gridiron. So what we're trying to do, and we're doing this through speaking with 
former and uh, former uh, college football players is to highlight how the NCAA system is at once saturated in these plantation dynamics, but also that higher education is intertwined in this. And this, um, we can't disconnect uh, higher education and our universities of supposed higher education from these plantation dynamics that continue to exploit a racialized working class to benefit uh, predominantly almost exclusively white men, um, university presidents, athletic directors, coaches, et cetera, um, through the unpaid labor of uh, college athletes. And intertwined in that is are themes of head trauma, violence, obviously racism, um, and exploitation and labor exploitation. Mm. And you're writing that with Nathan Kalman Lamb, yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah he's excellent. my co-author. Looking forward to that. And- Lastly, you know, we do ask this of all our guests, uh, particularly as you're working on this book, uh, what music is keeping you going? Huh. I, I would have to say that my, my, one of my favorite bands that continues to keep me going is Explosions in the Sky, which is actually fitting because if we know the, the film Friday Night Lights, that entire soundtrack was Explosions in the Sky. And in many ways, that film itself brought me to to studying football and exploring football because of uh, obviously for listeners, they might know what that film was about and all the dynamics happening there as well. So Your Hand in Mine by Explosions in the Sky uh, keeps me going almost every day. But we, we agree that the film is infinitely inferior to the television show, correct? <laughs> I actually haven't watched too much of the of the television show, so please don't. Oh my! It's, I've seen uh, it. I've seen a little bit, but not the entire thing. It's it's deep. I'll just say that. I'll, I'll have just, to check it out because I prefer depth when it comes to these things. Yeah, I mean, you know, also you got to learn about Coach and Mrs. Coach and the whole thing. Gotcha. But, yeah, Derek. Th th thanks so much for the time, man. Totally appreciated. Oh, thanks for having me, and it's been a blast. Awesome. Uh, we'll be right back after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look, Aaron Judge is an outfielder in a power forward's body. At a hulking six foot seven, he looks like you first believe him to be an optical illusion, but it's real. Even though a pitcher stands upon a 10 inch mound, he seems to tower over them at a distance of 60 feet, six inches, like a big brother playing wiffle ball at a picnic with his younger siblings. And now, with all the hype that comes with being a New York Yankee, 
Judge is on top of the baseball world. In the season's penultimate game, he hit his American League record 62nd home run, breaking Yankee Roger Maris's record of 61 set 61 years ago. It's a tremendous accomplishment. It's also not the Major League home run record. That belongs to Barry Lamar Bonds, who hit a staggering 73 homers in 2001 for the National League San Francisco Giants. And yet in the grand celebrations that greeted Judge's record-setting blast, Bonds's name went unuttered, or if it merited mention, it was to deride Bonds's accomplishment more than to celebrate Judge. Sports Illustrated senior baseball scribe Tom Verducci's article led with the following. Judge does not hold MLB's official single-season home run record, but his authenticity from his frame to his dedication to his sheepish smile sets him apart. Verducci's argument is that the record of Bonds is worthy of derision because of the sticky, swirling rumors, which baseball writers accept as holy writ, that Bonds took steroids and therefore all his accomplishments are inauthentic. For evidence, they point to changes in Bonds' body and his unprecedented statistical production toward the back end of his career. Yet there's something bigger going on. Verducci gives the game away by being besotted with Judge's sheepish smile. Barry Bonds was typecast as unsmiling and angry from the moment he entered the league with the Pirates, playing with a chip on his shoulder the size of Pittsburgh. That this chip was the result of a fiery generational desire to be the best, and because Major League Baseball treated his incredibly talented father Bobby Bonds, who was billed as the next Willie Mays and played for eight teams over his star-crossed 14-year career. Bobby Bonds was viewed as a malcontent, an angry black man in an era when that posture was unacceptable to the incurious white male and all-powerful baseball media. If anything, Barry Bonds' career is an indictment of that baseball media's next generation. It was almost as if his father's reputation was grandfathered in, and they decided to treat him from day one as toxic, and he responded in kind. Or maybe it's as simple as unsmiling black athletes in baseball are still seen as impermissible, and these same journalists wonder why more U.S.-born black kids don't play baseball. The story that Verducci doesn't tell is that when the steroid rumors blared around the two other symbols of the era, Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, as they chased Maris's home run record in 1998, the sports media was blinded by their fan-friendly antics and, yes, sheepish smiles. Bonds, who by this time had already built a Hall of Fame resume, bulked up and not only passed McGuire and Sosa, but put Babe Ruth in the rearview mirror. Seeing Barry Bonds hit was like few spectacles in baseball history. At his best, his skills were bigger than the sport. In 2004, he maintained an on-base percentage of 609. That means 61% of the time he came to the plate, he reached base. That's absurd. That's not even baseball. That's a low free throw percentage. The point is that his eyes so transcended any whiff of performance enhancers that they belong in the Louvre, but these writers won't even let him into Cooperstown. It's his likability deficit that kept him from being celebrated and adorned 
his records with unofficial asterisks. Consider that the aforementioned Tom Verducci voted for Red Sox legend David Ortiz to make the Baseball Hall of Fame, another player surrounded by steroid rumors. But Ortiz was one of the most heroic and likable stars of his era. These efforts to erase Barry Bonds shame the sport. In an era where pitchers and players were popping pills, taking shots, and treating clubhouse bathrooms like a health clinic, Barry Bonds was the best anyone had ever seen. You can like Barry Bonds or dislike Barry Bonds, but numbers are numbers. Barry Bonds hit 73 home runs in a season and a record 762 in his career. Even if in exile, he is still the king. And if you don't agree with me, maybe you should ask Aaron Judge. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now's the time for the part of the show where we go just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award this week is one that hurts the heart, but it goes to Sherelle Griner, the wife of Brittany Griner. Sherelle Griner did an interview this past week where she spoke, and it just tore the heart out of your chest about Brittany Griner feeling forgotten, about uh, when she talks to Brittany Griner and never having heard her so low, about fears that Brittany Griner is going to be living in a labor camp for the next nine years if they can't come up with a, some prisoner swap. And just the fact that Sherelle Griner went public with this, I thought was very powerful and very important because we cannot forget Brittany Griner because part of this is maintaining pressure on our own government to do what it has to do to bring Brittany Griner and all political prisoners across the world home. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. What do you think I'm going to talk about right now? Draymond Green. I'm going to talk about Draymond Green punching out Jordan Poole at practice and why Draymond Green needs to sit his ass down. First of all, let me just say what I think. There's a lot of debate about this. Was it a sucker punch? Was it a cheap shot? It wasn't a sucker punch, but it was a cheap shot. They're two separate things. If you've seen the video of this, you know that they were face to face Jordan Poole pushed Draymond, and Draymond responded right away with a punch. Now, I I think if you're going to fight somebody, you should square up, not just punch them. People disagree with me about that. But either way, Draymond Green is a leader on this team. Uh, He chased off Kevin Durant from wanting to be there. 
Now he might be chasing off Jordan Poole, who's incredibly talented. And at what point do you just say, I don't want this guy around anymore. Let me tell you something. It's going to take all of Steph Curry's leadership skills to keep this team together right now. Or Jordan Poole is going to be traded and it's going to suck because... That's beautiful basketball when him, Steph, and Clay are all clicking, as we saw in the playoffs this past year. So Draymond Green, stop making everything worse for the Golden State Warriors and sit your ass down. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to Derek Silva. Thank you so much. To my producer of this podcast, David Tigabu. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty and check out this movie I just did, Behind the Shield. BehindTheShieldMovie.com. It's pretty good. Uh, please, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.